It is one of the most thought-provoking statements made in the story of Hannah. The Lord had closed her womb. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 5. And again, the narrator says in the verse that immediately follows, the Lord had closed her womb. One writer compared Hebrew repetition to tire tracks in the snow that may show us where the narrator intends to go with his story. And these tracks lead us along at least one undeniable proposition in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. God is sovereign. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Psalm 24 verse 1, love that verse. Man may plan his steps, but the Lord directs them. Proverbs 16 and verse 1. Many passages support the almost universal consensus of the biblical God's imminent reign and rule across the span of the universe. But the characteristics of God's sovereignty in Hannah's story, oh, they go so much deeper than that. Again, the scripture reads, the Lord had closed her womb. You know, even for longtime readers of the Bible, this phrase has to appear somewhat difficult and troubling to understand. Clearly, such a barrier for a woman of ancient Israel, and for many women yet today across many cultures, religions, and ethnicities, find such an experience, would find such an experience to bring heartache, despair, and depression as a result of the barren womb. And yet the Bible says the Lord had closed her womb. The premise of this lesson here, really, that I want to put forward is that in God's sovereignty, there lies a key feature that I think is truly thematic, and it is consistent all across Scripture. And we find it here as well in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 5 through 6. Again, as Scripture reads, the Lord had closed her womb. Here is what I think the key feature is. God makes men low so that he may exalt them high. Did you hear what I said? In God's sovereignty, okay, there is a key feature, and here it is. God makes men low so that he may exalt them high. Now, it is my purpose to ratify this assertion with Scripture and with reason, of course. The first thing I want us to notice is that God makes man low. Okay, that's the first thing I want to put forward, and I want to put it forward clearly, and I want to put it forth rationally in such a way that you understand this very clearly, and you can see it very clearly in Scripture. God makes man low. That's premise number one here. God made Hannah low. Think about it. Again, God closed the womb of Hannah. We have to establish the fact that indeed God does make man low. The author leaves no uncertainty regarding the source and the, the authorship of Hannah's barren hood. It's not the work of Satan, providentially permitted by the Lord. It's not happenstance that is once again indirectly attributed to God. No, it's not happenstance. The inspired narrator explicitly states that it is Yahweh. It is the God of Israel who has closed the Israelite woman's womb. The Lord had closed her womb. And so lest there should be any doubts that he has misspoken, the author doubles down again in the immediate verse that follows of 1 Samuel chapter 1. The Lord had closed 
her womb. One man suggested at the second mention, at the second mention of this attribution to the Lord, God's direct and his active restraint of the womb, specifically here, is being recognized and it is being claimed for his sovereign purposes. Now that is what one author says, but I think that is clear to us, isn't it? That it is being made known to us that God is the one that is responsible for closing this woman's womb. Now, it may behoove us at this juncture to immediately qualify the correlation between lowness and barrenhood, because I think there could be some misunderstanding here that we would not want anyone to walk away with, though it is essential to our premise, our premise here that God does make man low. But to be clear here, we, let, let's say this very clearly. One is not inherently low. Okay, listen to me now. One is not, ladies, listen to me. One is not inherently low in the sight of God merely because they are barren. Oh man, that is so important. You know, scripture tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Luke chapter 1 verses 6 through 7. The assigning of low status due to barrenhood was not of God ultimately, but of man. Now, this is especially true within the ancient society of Israel, as probably many of you already know and expect, where God's people really probably continued to subscribe to the Genesis 1, 28 edict, be fruitful and multiply, okay? That was something that was actually spoken specifically to Adam and Eve. Of course, it is a principle that underlies every marriage and so that every individual who marries uh, a man and woman who, who commit themselves for life, yes, they uh, should be fruitful and multiply, or at least, I, I let me rephrase that, they can be fruitful and multiply. It's a wonderful thing to do. But again, Zacharias, Elizabeth, so many others throughout scripture, barren, you know, even the uh, famous Abraham, and think about Isaac and, and Jacob, uh, maybe not so much Jacob, <laughs> with, with Rachel, he did. But uh, these patriarchs, many of them struggled with barrenhood. It did not make them unrighteous. And, and so, uh, again, uh, we need to recognize that, uh, especially within this ancient culture. Again, one man says that in that culture, talking about the ancient Near Eastern culture, a barren wife could easily be given a lower status, if not divorced altogether. And so why are we, I, I might be sound like I'm counter, uh, counteracting myself here. God makes man low and then I'm putting forward Hannah and her barrenhood. Well, we have to remember this was written in a time when it was of low status, or at least it was assigned by men and always has been assigned by men to be of low status. But it is. It was God who the narrator indicated had clearly positioned Hannah in this circumstance, inevitably knowing, of course, that this would impute a lower status upon Hannah. Again, that imputation was not of God, but of man. But he knew that, of course, especially her rival Peninnah, who uh, in some ways Lord, the Lord had hemmed, Hannah's position in such a way that now she was also subject to this rival by the name of Peninnah who uh, really uh, made her low and provoked her day in and day out. And so God was the one who had ultimately hemmed her in within a society that 
for them was no problem at all to assign a lower status to men. The Lord makes men low. The Lord's direct act in closing Hannah's womb can also, by the way, be further underlined by a later contrast in the text. Because in the process of time, Scripture says the Lord remembered her. So it was the Lord who closed her womb. It was also the Lord later who remembered her. Now that will lead to Hannah's conception and birth of a son. But here I want to point out that the Lord had closed her womb and it was the Lord who opened her womb as well. Even Hannah herself may have been privy to the realization that it was the Lord who had positioned her as such, though her faith in him remained unwavering. I want you to consider how this is amazing. The very first words we read from Hannah's lips is that divine title, Lord of hosts, which really is said to communicate God's role as the leader and the military general of all the heavenly and earthly armies of the universe. Some versions commonly translate this title, Lord Almighty or Lord All-Powerful. Since Hannah beseeches this commander of heavenly and earthly hosts for the child she so desperately yearns for, it is certain that she believes he has the power to bestow the gift to her. And yet in this same belief, she is in some ways then acknowledging that it is the Lord who has brought her to this lower position in life. That, that's kind of an amazing thing when you really stop and think about it. Now, she's not the only one. I'll just briefly mention here that God has made others low too. God made Samuel low, this child that would later be conceived to her. Samuel lived in the shadow of the household of Eli, particularly the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli who domineer the worship at, Chi- at Shiloh. In fact, the opening chapter blends their identification together with it in 1 Samuel 1.3. And then there is a detailed description of their abhorrent misconduct that is outlined before us in 1 Samuel 2 in verses 12 through 21. But the narrator so softly interjects this statement, but Samuel ministered before the Lord and he grew before the Lord. And so one gets the sense that the circumstances surrounding Samuel's life, they're not ideal. Life is not all as it should be at the tabernacle of God. God was with with Samuel, though, and he did establish him as a prophet. And God brought Samuel up into a, a dark period of Israel's history. And at the core of it, ironically, was the very tabernacle where Samuel lived. God made Samuel low. He made Saul low. He made David low. As we continue on in the scriptures, he made many men low. Though again, we may acknowledge that these lownesses are made in the sight of men while at the same time acknowledging that God brings them into this man-perceived lowness. We want to highlight both, by the way, not to cause confusion here, of course not, but we want to uh, recognize that lowness really in many ways, if not all cases, is on account of man, though God brings man in to this low position, this low perception, and he uses it to an advantage to declare, as we later will see, that truly that one is high. That one is a, a valuable, valuable in the sight of God. And, and, and so 
God makes man low, though we need to recognize that with some very important nuance there. Now, in that statement, God makes man low, or that first premise we set forth, we also recognize this then, God makes man high. If we are going to assert that God makes men low so that he may cause them to be high and to fly high, well, let's notice the next point here, that God indeed makes man high. God made Hannah high. God gave Hannah a son. God gave Hannah a son. The direct act of divine exaltation is borne witness to in the same story there where we see that the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's vow for many. It becomes the central focus of the second section there in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. But you know, the name of the Lord is evoked no less than five times. And the God of Israel is the source of Eli's blessings upon Hannah's petition. Hannah prays to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 10. Hannah proceeds to make a vow to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maid servant, Hannah continues her prayers before the Lord. Hannah acknowledges the high priest, her pouring out of soul before the Lord. What's the point here? Well, while the vow is certainly important, really, we need, must not forget that the Lord remains the central focus here. And hence, when we are told of Hannah and Elkanah's intimate connection, it is not truly the power and strength of the couple. Of course not. It's not the couple who gives way to Hannah's long-sought conception, but it is the power and the strength of the Lord Almighty. It is he who remembers her. 1 Samuel 1.19. The conception that follows is really a lot like that book that is ordered before in the Hebrew canon and attributed to Boaz and Ruth. When he went into her, Ruth chapter 4 verse 13 says, when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now you don't read those explicit words in 1 Samuel chapter 1, but how fitting it is that that is exactly the same thing that is being said here when we are told by the inspired author that it is he, it is the Lord, who remembers her. And even the name Hannah, <laughs> Hannah chose the name that she chose for her newborn son is an honor to the God whom she petitioned. Samuel, she says, because I have asked for him for the Lord. God was the one that lifted her, lifted her up. And then we see that God gave Hannah three more sons and two more daughters. Wow, how amazing the Lord who makes high. Hannah's exaltation does not end with the birth of Samuel. In some sense, that would almost leave us saddened, wouldn't it? If only her firstborn son were her last, a son whom now she has to dedicate to the temple and only pay visitation to a few times a year. Yet scripture reveals to us again that, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. 1 Samuel 2 and verses 20, verse 21. Wow, how amazing. And then we're not even done there. God, ultimately, if you think about it from the meta-narrative, the, if, you, if you draw back and look at Scripture from a bird's eye view, God places Hannah 
at the front line of the hall of scripture, doesn't he? Hannah may only be a first of many, but she is a first, and that makes her special in that line of those who are found to be low, again, in the sight of man, but put there by God, then who later are brought up oh so very high. And here we are now talking about her. Isn't it amazing? Hannah forever lives in the hearts of three millennias now of Bible readers and listeners. If Samuel's conception could not be delivered except through the mighty act of God, okay, her son, it would be of equal strain upon the mind, I think, to conceive that the story of a lowly Israelite woman should be delivered from generation to generation, this story being told, this sermon being preached right now, except that it were through the mighty act of that same power. That power that gave her birth is the power now that is moving in us, moving through us in time from generation to generation, moving through our preaching and our teaching and moving into the ears of you right now, the listener. It is amazing. It is amazing how God exalts and lifts up. Never lifted a sword. Hannah's story well and alive, gaining more notoriety than many decorated commanders and generals of great prominence whom I can't even name because I don't know them, but I know Hannah. <coughs> it's an amazing thing. God lifts up. And of course, God makes others high too. God made Samuel high. <coughs> Excuse me again. God declared to the household of Israel, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And he certainly did that with Samuel. God made Saul high. Saul was made low. God made him high. There he is, the Lord said to Samuel. This one shall reign over my people. And Saul drew near. He would be anointed on a high place. He would be seated in the place of honor. 1 Samuel 9 and verse 22. Finally, he would be anointed commander over God's inheritance. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1. And though Saul will not immediately possess the hearts of all men, those who go with him are said to have had their hearts touched by God himself. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 26. God made Saul high from his position of lowliness. No, <coughs> excuse me again though we see where that goes ultimately. And then God made David high too, didn't he? And then, of course, God made David high too, of course. The key figure here, really, throughout all First and Second Samuel, David's exaltation by the divine hand is so clearly portrayed throughout the whole of First and Second Samuel. Yet the prominence of God's exalting stamp upon David, it does occur at specific moments. You know, you think about the choosing of David among seven older brothers, that's the first of such moments. So unlikely is his selection that he's not even found among the seven at the passing before Samuel. It always cracks us up, doesn't it, when we think about that moment? And then there's moment after moment that follows. As David is remembered, uh, small things maybe we've forgotten. He's remembered before Saul's servants as a skillful musician. Well, who brought about that remembrance? Or David slaying the mighty giant. That's the most memorable, of course. God was with him, wasn't he? And David's name being sung alongside the exalted king. All such moments, God exalting David. Now, we've asserted here, we made it known, God makes men low. I think we've clearly demonstrated that through scripture. Uh, God makes man high. Again, we have clearly demonstrated that through scripture. But here's our conclusion, and here's the, again, what we might call the key feature, the, 
specific feature of God's sovereignty that we don't always connect with on a daily basis and probably one that we need to connect with because the vast majority of us are not born in a yacht, so to speak. The vast majority of us are not born in a high and lofty place. The vast majority of us are born really in a lowly place, one that is, again, low in the sense that it is esteemed by men as such. It is lowly esteemed by men, even despised by men, even despised by those of us who are uh, born into and bring, brought up in that lowly position. We ourselves oftentimes have not uh, appreciated that, though maybe we can see as we're going to show here forth in a moment, how that has benefited us in many, many tremendous ways in our life. But that's even how we oftentimes have seen it. And we try to bring our own selves up out of that lowly place for good reason, of course. But I want us to see, especially in the story of Hannah, how God's hand has a hand in these occasions that perhaps we fail to recognize sometimes that God, though he makes man high, he also makes man low, and he does so, I think, for these occasions. Well, let me just get to it here so I can explain and not repeat myself too often, but here's the assertion, here's the conclusion. God makes man low that he that is, man may fly high. God makes man low so that man may fly high. Now, I want to talk about God's purpose and plan for a moment. If you'll listen to me, if you'll just bear with me here for a little bit, a little bit here. If it were not for the fact that these ones, and, and, and applicably to us today, were not made low, if these ones were not made low, they could not have been made high. Now, now isn't that just logic and order there? Highness requires lowness in some sense. Even for those ones who are born high, so to speak, there has to be a low place. There has to be a low place in order for them to be recognized in a high place. Something cannot be brought up unless it is brought from below. You know, even the ancient Christian commentator by the name of John Chrysostom, he's noted uh, he noted, I should say, how the Lord's closure. Now, he spoke to this moment of Hannah's womb being closed by the Lord. He said these words. He said, nothing could have rendered her more conspicuous on that account. Nothing renders the heart so wise, he goes on to say, as affliction. Nothing is there so sweet as godly mourning. Now, those kind of thoughts reflect the acknowledgement of what we're talking about here. God's purpose and plan to lower his subjects for a time, only that he may bring forth and bring up the glory and brightness of his plans. His plan to lift up what could not be rendered so high, except if it should be borne along, we might say, by affliction mourning, despising even, lowering. The most compelling evidence, I would say, is found in Hannah's own version of the Magnificat, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. After acknowledging her exaltation 
and judging the fall of her enemy. Here's what Hannah herself observes. She observes the following. Notice what she says. She says, the Lord kills. Now, wow, what a statement there. The Lord kills. Okay, she said it herself. The Lord kills and makes alive. Now, Now, if that weren't clear enough for you, here's the next thing she says. He brings down. Did you hear what he just, she just said? He brings down to the grave and brings up. Then she goes on. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. And then she even says these words. I think they almost just about explicitly state the very thing I'm saying. He brings low, she says. What did, what did you just say, Hannah? Did you hear what just Hannah, Hannah just said? He, that is God, brings low. That's what I said moments ago, didn't I? And then she says, and lifts up. Isn't that what I just said? God brings low, God lifts up. That's what Hannah just said. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. I'm reading the rest now. And lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord. She says, okay, now she's she's just saying about God's sovereignty there. And he has set the world upon them. God's sovereignty, wonderful, beautiful thing. But we don't always recognize what Hannah recognized. We don't even like to utter it from our own lips sometimes. Maybe the part, yes, that God exalts, he brings up. But that God brings low. That God makes poor. Wow, now now those are words, especially in our culture today, in our, our, our woke culture today, people don't like to hear those words. He makes poor, he brings low, he brings down. Yes, yes, yes. The Lord does these things. The Lord had closed her womb. We can't forget those words at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah knew it. The inspired author knew it. The reader, if he's willing to acknowledge it, he knows it. The the, the one who's loyal and committed to scripture, he knows it. The one who wants to, uh, you know, rub up against the culture, uh, be friendly to the culture today, he, he may not want to acknowledge it though, but Hannah did. There was another author who noted the participles that are being used. That's, that's fancy grammarian language for basically saying the, the words that, that share in one another. Uh, there are participles that are being used here. Um, Actually, what's being said here, if I were to probably read it from the Hebrew and then transfer it to the English, literally, the Lord is killing and making alive. The Lord is bringing down and bringing up. The Lord is making poor and making rich. He is bringing low and he is lifting up. What the point is there is that these are not just specific acts. And Hannah does not notice God's work here is just a specific, one-time, unique act. No, it is a customary action of God. It is part of his noble character. It is a feature that is thematic, like I said before, consistent of God's providential, sovereign working. It's an act of raising up, but it's also an act of lowering. It's an act of making rich, but it's also an act of making poor. It is the act of magnifying his great and mighty works through the counter harmony of his often forgotten chord 
that it is he who is also lowering and diminishing for a season. You know, we only see the exalting nature of God, but we forget the humbling nature of God too, don't we? Yes, God conceived, gave conception to that one who brought forth the Savior, and he was born in a manger. Who did that? It was God, the humbling nature of God. We forgot, forget how it was the Lord who led Israel through the wilderness, and he himself will say in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, that he might humble you and that he might test you. These words were spoken to Israel to do you good in the end. We forget that. We forget that it was God who led them through the wilderness, who made them low. We forget that it was God who left the nations of Canaan among the Israelites that he might test them, Judges 3.1. It was the Lord himself who made himself poor, that through his poverty man might be made rich, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Wow, how we need to recognize God's purpose and plan. We need to acknowledge his sovereign nature in that he not only lifts up, but that he also makes low. Uh, here's one other thing about God's plan, I think. God's plan, his purpose. If he had not made low, there could not have been made high. And, and here's another thing. If they were not made lower, they may have never looked higher. You know, these, these famous Bible characters, and, and of course applicable to us today too, it can only be explored in the speculative, I guess. It is still, though, an important avenue of thought to consider that such testing, okay, testing, this lowering down, this humbling, is intended not only to usher in God's plan and purpose to make man fly high, but also, I think, to provoke a desired response of man, okay? I'm going to explain that. Without God's testing and his allowance and his closure of the womb, the Lord closed her womb. Would Hannah have been driven to the dedication with which she offered Samuel? There's another man who asked a question very specific in regard to Peninnah, Hannah's rival. He, he says, without Peninnah's goading, her mockery and her malice, would Hannah have ever been driven to the distraction that moved her to desperate prayer? Uh, again, I think two of the great patriarchs themselves, they all suffered a period of barrenhood. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. Though they may not have always worked out their zeal perfectly in the sight of God, yes, okay, Abraham and, you know, uh, I forgot her name already. But they didn't always work it out perfectly. Their lowered status drove them to God and drove them to unparalleled circumstances of faith. Okay, so uh, my point is, if they were not made lower, they may have never looked higher. And without having been made lower, they could not have been made higher. God's purpose and his plan. Okay, now, <clears throat> before we close, I, I, I hope this lesson's been helpful to you, by the way. Some principles and application to carry on. And I, I've kind of been trying to throw them in alongside that, this, this study here, but some some principles now, some application I want you to take away with. The spiritual and theological principles of application are witnessed in Hannah's trusting obedience, her worship, and her prayer. Okay? Her trusting obedience, her worship, 
and her prayer. Very important principles that we need to carry along right now, right here in our life today. Hannah has no other way to respond to her situation except that she continues in worship, obedience, and prayer. Now think about this. Her doxology of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, moments ago, we called that the her, her magnificant. It gives no hint to some secret strength or self-righteous act of her own. Her praise and her acknowledgement is found wholly in God. Her trust, her victory, it's completely in him. She even says in her, what we keep calling her magnificent, this is her praise, her magnifying of the Lord. She says, by strength, listen to these words, so beautiful, by strength no man shall prevail. Now, Hannah can't say those words except that she, by no strength of her own, prevailed. The Lord is judge, she says, or will judge. The Lord will judge. The Lord is the one who who is going to bring about retribution upon her enemies and upon her situation. Worship is the theme of Hannah's life. Obedience and trust, it's the theme of her life. Retaliation, vengeance, manipulation, uh, self-devised plans to advocate her pregnancy, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're all absent and void in Hannah's story. It is, as one man calls, a theological reversal of injustice. It's, it's a God reversal, in other words. Again, one man said, the hope of the poor and weak is rooted in the foundational power of the creator in this story. It, undoubtedly, undoubtedly it is. The hope of the poor and weak, it's rooted in God. Man is reminded in this story, in a very narrative fashion, that it is, that he, I should say, is being implicitly, narratively instructed to find strength in the Lord and to look to his sovereign power to balance the scales of justice, to balance the scales of righteousness. Look to God for a theological reversal of injustice. Now, you know where that's moving me. Don't you? You know, you know what? If you're listening to the news, if you live in America, if you're watching all the nonsense that's going on in our culture today, okay, you know where this is going. Social and political principles of application are massive. They're massive in this story in view of especially current social and political movements and in view of her current, uh, uh, I shouldn't say current, but her social and political movement, uh, situation there. The social and political principles of application, they're massive. They're big. So many of the new and social and political ideologies, they tend to focus today solely upon the victimization of the oppressed, okay? The injustice of the oppressor. But few, if any, acknowledge the work of a sovereign God do you know of any, in fact, that acknowledge the work of a sovereign God who is already assured, okay? He's already told us the permanent nature, the permanent nature of such a de- design. And one who is utilizing this infrastructure that he has already said is going to be there, okay? It's going to be there. You're going to have the poor with you always, like Jesus said. You're, that is the situation. Do you understand me? Are you listening to me? That's the situation, That's the situation. But God, 
in this permanent nature of design. He utilizes this infrastructure. Why? It's part of his plan. It's part of his purpose to exalt, to exalt his chosen vessels from their lowly status. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to happen in this life, in this earth, but we're going to see it in the last day, that's for sure. And so often in the case, we see it even now. And so the social and political applications here are so big in our time today. And when you're thinking about the, the new social and political ideologies, they're only focusing on the victimization. They're not focusing on the God reversal of injustice. They're, they're not focusing on these. One that is really primarily systematic. I'm talking about their system of thinking. It's, it's all systematic. Uh, it's all focused on the system, the system, the system, uh, the, the, the society, you know, uh, the man, so to speak. <clears throat> I'm using that in a big term. Um, and they completely ignore the responsibility of the individual. And that's what we see in this story. That's what we see. We see an individual who is placing their trust and their obedience and their worship solely upon God, solely upon God. It's a theological reversal of injustice. That's what we learn from this story. It places the emphasis square upon the individual who can trust in the big one, the big guy, okay? The big, big, big system, which is God's system, okay? <laughs> Lest we forget, this is God's system, okay? That's the problem with the world today. That's the problem with our culture. They don't see the system that lies beyond. They don't see the divine system. They just see the man's divine, not the man divine, the man system. That's all they see is the man system, okay? Both biologically, socially, ideologically, everything. That's all they see is the man system. They don't recognize and understand that there's a God system behind it all. God, like that, he can change it all if he wants to. And in many cases, he would be willing to, just as he did with Hannah. But we've got to look to him. It places the responsibility on the individual. And as evidenced by Hannah's story, this injustice should not be thought of only in terms of poverty and riches, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's bringing the application, making it even broader here. This, this, there is, at the heart of this story, there's injustice, isn't there? She is being provoked, okay, and especially in her society, there is a lowering of the status uh, uh, of infertility. She can't control that. It, and is that right, by the way? Well, no, obviously it's not. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, righteous before God. God never said, okay, I want society to uh, despise those who do not have many children. Absolutely not, okay? There was injustice there. But what does God message us? He's the author of scripture, ultimately. What's the message here? Change the system? No, no, no. That's not, that's not at all. The message here to you and I, because that's who's reading this story today. That's who this message is for today. That's why the scripture is preserved. It's for you and me today. What's the lesson we're to get out of this? It's not about changing the man system. It's about looking beyond the man system, looking to the God system, and trusting in him 
to reverse the injustice. And that injustice might include uh, so many other things beside infertility. A stolen birthright. Lack of recognition for maybe something you ought to be recognized for. Health. Shouldn't we all be in good health? But unfortunately, we're all victims, long, really, ultimately of death and of all the sickness and evil that was brought into the world through Satan and <clears throat> through man's sins. But we all participate in that in some way, but I won't go down that road. But uh, infertility, disability, uh, a wrongful accusation, abuse, scorn, spite, slavery, adultery, murder, uh, miscarriage, natural disasters, every wicked, every coincidental thing that unjustly humiliates us, oppresses us, um, takes away from our joy and uh, the, the pleasures that we ought to have always in Christ Jesus. Um, these injustices broadly apply to us today in that we can learn from the injustice of Hannah and be encouraged to look to the God system. By the way, does that mean a Christian has no grounds for crying out for justice in the courts of men? Well, certainly not. But it's the realization that this is a low-level response to life's injustices. The high-level response is witnessed in Hannah, who looks chiefly upon her God and entrusts her oppression wholly unto him. Why would, a, why would the Lord close a righteous woman's womb? Robert D. Burgeon, a distinguished professor of the Old Testament with over 30 years at the Hannibal LaGrange University, he too recognized Hannah's plight and he left his readers with the question, how could a truly good God command a person to do something. He's thinking about the Genesis 1, 28 edict, if you want to take it that way, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. How could a truly good God command a person to do something and then make it impossible for them to fulfill that command? Well, <clears throat> again, in that question lies some problems um, specifically, but in some ways, God did make it possible even if we go along with that, the premise of that question, God did make it possible. He made it possible in a way that Hannah could not have fathomed. Through the, through the first of her labor and her distress, God used Hannah to forge Israel's greatest judge and its first kingmaker. God made Hannah incredibly low in so many ways but so that he might cause her to fly incredibly high. And I suspect if you find yourself in a low position today, if that's your scenario, perhaps today's lesson will encourage you to think about Hannah and to think about perhaps in some way, in some measure, not necessarily in riches, by the way. No, I want you to expand your thinking, broaden your view a little bit, how might God have used your lowliness, your low position, your troubles and your distresses to make you fly high, to put you in a position, a situation of highness that you may forge, as Hannah did, something great, something that will be an encouragement to all and perhaps already has been. 
I hope if that's the case, the latter there, you're using that weapon that God has in so many ways allowed you through his sovereignty, through his greatness and his wisdom. He has allowed you to forge such a weapon. He has placed it in your hands. And I pray that you are using it and will continue to use it. But if you're the former, maybe you're in a situation where currently now the the odds are just stacked against you seemingly. You're down and out, oppressed. The man has got you down. Well, I hope you can see that beyond the system lies a God system, one who has far greater control over this world in so, so many ways. Look for the blessing. Look for the blessing. I want to encourage you, look for the blessing and you will find it. God is always working good for those who love him.